Have you ever wondered why the cross is the symbol of the Christian faith? We could have made the manger as our emblem, highlighting the incarnation of Christ. It could be the towel with which Jesus wiped the disciples' feet, elevating the value of servant leadership. Or maybe our logo should be the empty tomb that declares that Jesus is alive and we who have placed our faith in him share the same hope. Why not the dove or fire as a symbol of the Holy Spirit? A water as a sign of our baptism and cleansing from sin? Now, on the outside, they all seem to be legit and have an important place in the Christian faith. But of all the things that could have been used to represent our faith, the historical church went in favor of the cross. The cross stands for the centrality of Jesus' death. When you go back 2,000 years, this decision to go in favor of the cross is all the more remarkable considering what the cross meant in that culture. The cross was an emblem of shame. It was the worst, most painful form of death reserved for the lowest criminals in the Roman Empire. Why do we find the New Testament writers repeatedly emphasizing on the cross and the sufferings of Jesus and his death over and over? The Apostle Paul, for instance, says in Galatians 6, 14, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Excuse me. Boast about an emblem of shame? That seems like a contradiction, a paradox. How can you boast about something people despise and scorn? Yet in Paul's theology, the cross served an overriding purpose. That is because it is the only basis on which God can forgive our sins. The cross of Christ is not something trivial. It is central to the Christian faith without which our faith will fall apart. So we celebrate Good Friday, the day of Jesus' agonizing death, to declare to the world the power of the cross, the significance of what was accomplished through this instrument of death, In our sermon series from the Gospel of Matthew, we are taking a closer look at the final week of Jesus' life, the week that changed the world. And today's text is from Matthew chapter 27, verses 15 to 26. And if you're physically able, I'm going to ask you to stand. Uh, Those of you watching us online, we are so glad you can be part of this worship experience. I'm going to request you to stand as well to honor the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 27, verses 15 to 26. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat. His wife sent him this message. 
Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, it is sobering to realize we had a role to play in your crucifixion. For it was for our sins you suffered and died. And we have a collective responsibility. But it's also sobering to realize we are recipients of your great love. Your selfless act of sacrifice through which today we can celebrate the freedom and forgiveness that we have so freely received. So make your word come alive in our hearts. Fill our hearts with profound gratitude, even as we kneel together at the foot of the cross. Speak to us today in the power of your spirit. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You all may be seated. When I was in Bible seminary, I read a book about the atonement of Jesus that I found to be particularly disturbing. I knew there are varying views about the atonement, different perspectives on the death of Jesus and what it has accomplished for us. But this was the first time I encountered this new perspective from a liberal theology and made me quite angry and upset. It was called the nonviolent atonement. It sounded more like Gandhi than Jesus. And this provocative view argues God did not plan or sanction the cross of Christ. God doesn't need the violent death of Jesus in order to forgive our sins. Oh yes, Jesus died a violent death, but it was not to satisfy an angry God. God sent his son in love, and this is what humans did in response. So in that sense, the cross is not a divine requirement, but a mere tragedy. And Jesus' death is a supreme example, like that of a martyr, not an atoning sacrifice. Now this view that I just explained is totally inconsistent and defies the themes that run throughout the Bible. It is a misunderstanding and misrepresentation of the character of God and the nature of sin. And completely misses out on the very point of Jesus' death. For when Jesus died on the cross, he took God's judgment upon himself on our behalf. 
And we, in turn, receive forgiveness. The full penalty of sin was paid, not by us, for we could never pay the debt we owed. So Jesus pays for us. We come empty-handed, fully deserving of God's wrath and judgment. And rather than penalizing us for our sins, Jesus takes our place. Sin is given the just treatment it deserves, but God himself absorbs the cost. This view articulates the heart of the atonement of Jesus. Jesus' death is a substitutionary death. He died in our place. This is what Jesus himself said earlier in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom is an interesting word. In today's context, we use that word in a negative sense. Often we hear about someone kidnapping a child and asking for a ransom from the rich parents. Or a hacker gets into a computer network and demands a ransom from the company. But that's not the way Jesus is using the word ransom here. In Jesus' time, a ransom was a price paid to release a slave. When Jesus paid the ransom on our behalf, who did he pay to? It was not to the devil. It was to God the Father. God, who's a righteous judge, demands that sin be punished. A holy God cannot overlook the breaking of his commands and laws. So we who have sinned against God justifiably deserve his wrath and judgment. Wrath is another word that brings all kinds of connotations. And we have to see wrath as God's righteous indignation against all that is evil. He's not overlooking, not closing his eyes to the wrongs and injustices in the world. But the problem is you and I as humans, we are guilty of evil actions. And Jesus pays the ransom to free us from our slavery to sin. He redeems us from God's judgment by offering himself. And with his blood, he purchases our freedom. We are exempt from punishment because someone else has been punished in our place. The ransom has been fully paid. And what that means is you and I are no longer a slave to sin, but when we place our faith in Jesus, we become part of God's own family. That is the good news of Good Friday. This leads us to our text here in Matthew 27 that gives us a clear visual enactment of the substitutionary atonement that I just talked about, how Jesus has taken our place in judgment and we are made free. Now, who is this character in our story named Barabbas? 
Jesus is on trial before Pilate, the Roman governor. And that's because the Jews did not have the power to issue a death penalty. They needed Roman approval. Jesus is being charged for treason, for claiming to be the king of the Jews, an act of defiance to the Roman Empire. Pilate has a conversation with Jesus, and he did not find any fault with him. Pilate is keen on releasing Jesus, letting him go. Pilate's wife had a dream that morning, and she sends a message to Pilate. That man is innocent. Let go of him. If not, you will sleep in the basement for the rest of your life. Pilate is under a lot of pressure. On the one hand, he knows that Jesus was innocent. And on the other hand, he wanted to please the Jewish religious leaders who were adamant that Jesus be executed. And he thought favoring the religious leaders would work better for him in the long run. But he comes up with this idea, a great idea, There was a custom in those days to release a prisoner during Passover. It seems to be fitting as Passover celebrates Israel's freedom from slavery in Egypt. What better way than to nominate a prisoner to be freed as symbolic of Israel's freedom? Pilate is hoping that the crowd will choose to release Jesus. Here comes the character Barabbas in the story. Barabbas was a well-known prisoner. All four Gospels record this incident about Jesus and Barabbas, so it is a significant account. Mark chapter 15 verse 7 tells us, a man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. So here we have some information about Barabbas. He's not a good guy. He's an insurrectionist, guilty of rebelling against Rome. He committed a murder. He's a murderer, a notorious criminal, now sentenced to death with other insurrectionists. No wonder he's popular among the people because he rebelled against the Roman occupation. He's a Jewish hero. You commonly hear Jesus was crucified between two thieves. But they were not thieves. They too were rebels, insurrectionists. Crucifixion was not a penalty for small crimes like theft. Thieves were not crucified. But insurrection is a crime against the Roman Empire, against Caesar himself, and therefore it was taken very seriously. That explains the public execution and torture to serve as an example to everybody. This is what happens when you mess with Rome. The three crosses on Mount Calvary were prepared in advance. And the middle one in which Jesus was crucified was originally meant for Barabbas. Possibly because Barabbas was the leader of the other two 
insurrectionists. Here's something interesting. What is Barabbas' full name? A text says here in verses 16 and 17, at that time they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who's called the Messiah? Hmm. Barabbas' full name was Jesus Barabbas. Did you know that? And Pilate is asking the question, which Jesus do you want me to release? We have two Jesuses here. One Jesus is a notorious criminal. The other Jesus is innocent. Now, considering how bad Barabbas was, Pilate speculated that they would free Jesus, who has not done anything wrong in comparison. Interestingly, some of the scribes who later copied the New Testament deleted the name Jesus from Barabbas. They thought that is just too embarrassing. We should not associate the name of the Lord with a criminal like Barabbas. So some manuscripts do not have the word Jesus before Barabbas. The explanation is pretty obvious, faulty human reasoning. And whoever removed the name Jesus from Barabbas missed the point Matthew, the gospel writer, was trying to make. Matthew has carefully constructed this account, and he's deliberately presenting two Jesuses side by side. Do you know what else is interesting? It's the name Barabbas. What does that mean? Bar in Aramaic means son of. Abba, as you all know, means father. So Barabbas means son of the father. Jesus Barabbas is Jesus, son of the father. And then we have Jesus, our Lord, the only begotten Son of the Father. So here you compare Barabbas with Jesus. Both names have striking similarities, remarkable parallels, and remarkable differences. Two sons of the Father. This Jesus is charged guilty. The other Jesus is innocent. This Jesus has committed murder. The other Jesus had raised people from the dead. This Jesus is guilty of rebellion. The other Jesus is fully submissive to his Father's will. This Jesus is set free, and the other Jesus takes his place. Does anybody see here a vague reference to substitutionary atonement? Or a better question would be, can anybody miss seeing this clear, vivid, expressive portrayal of the atonement by Matthew, the gospel writer? Christian theologian John Stott wrote, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God 
substituting himself for man. What was Barabbas' crime? Rebellion. Trying to take over the throne. It shows our human attempt to become God. And Jesus, on the other part, is the ultimate example of sacrifice, God substituting himself in our place. I hope we can see this from our text. Barabbas is symbolic of all of us. You and I. For we are the guilty ones, guilty of rebellion, notorious in character, rightly condemned to be judged. Jesus is innocent, he's flawless, and yet he trades places with us. Our sins are laid on him, and we in turn receive his righteousness. Jesus is treated as guilty so we can be released from our prison. The judgment that was rightfully ours falls on Jesus. What seems like total injustice is a selfless act of sacrifice and becomes the basis for our forgiveness today. For there's no forgiveness outside of the cross of Jesus Christ. On that Good Friday, one ended up on the cross intended for the other. And the guilty one walked away free. What an amazing picture of what the cross really means. Jesus took Barabbas' place he took ours too. Now I wonder what kind of impact all of this had on Barabbas. The scripture is silent. He's on death row, waiting to be sentenced with absolutely no hope. Barabbas had no way of escape. The cross on which he would be crucified was ready and waiting for him. Here he is languishing in prison, knowing any moment he could be taken away to be crucified. And all of a sudden, he's in his prison cell, and he hears these words from crucify him, crucify him. And Barabbas must have assumed they're talking about him, that they're coming to get him. And lo and behold, the Roman soldiers walked up to Barabbas, not to take him away to be crucified, but to release him. And Barabbas would have been confused, stunned by the sudden change. His chains are removed. The prison door is opened wide. They take off the handcuffs from Barabbas. His prison uniform is replaced with regular clothes. And Barabbas walks out of the prison as a free man. Our text tells us in verse 26, then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. 
Jesus had taken Barabbas' place. The crime Jesus is accused of was fitting of what Barabbas had done. He's accused of defying Caesar. Jesus is now being flogged by the Roman soldiers. It should have been Barabbas. He deserved the flogging, not Jesus. And unlike the Jews who counted the lashes and stopped at 39, the Romans did not. And as a result, they say so many victims die from the flogging itself. What was it like for Barabbas to watch all this? Jesus being flogged mercilessly, his back bloody and ripped. Did Barabbas follow Jesus on the road to Calvary? As Jesus with blood dripping from the flogging is struggling under the weight of the heavy Roman cross, carrying it to the place of his own execution. Did Barabbas watch the Roman soldiers making a mockery of all this as they knelt down before Jesus, gave him a crown of thorns, a purple robe, and they just mocked and laughed? Was Barabbas one of the observers at the scene of the cross where Jesus was stripped naked and they pounded those nails on his hands and feet? Did Barabbas grasp the immensity of that moment when Jesus on the cross cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did Barabbas even wrestle with the implications of those words when Jesus mustered enough strength to cry out for the one last time, it is finished. Now, how selfish would it be for Barabbas to walk away and not give any thought to the gravity of what had just taken place? Now, how ungrateful it would be for Barabbas to not even stop and say thank you to Jesus. The scripture doesn't tell us Barabbas' response. And if you ask Matthew, the gospel writer, Matthew, you introduced a character to us and you left him abruptly. We, the readers of the gospel, want to know more. We are curious. Matthew, tell us more about Barabbas. Did he come to faith in Jesus? Did he realize what had just happened? Was he even grateful? We, the readers, are eager to know. And Matthew would look at you and say, it's not important for you to know how Barabbas would have responded, but the more pressing question is, how are you responding to all this? You were guilty of rebelling against God. On all counts, you needed to be judged. You had no way of escape. You were waiting for the axe to fall. But Jesus voluntarily has taken your place. 
So you can walk away with no fear of punishment. There is no condemnation left for you. Your chains have been broken. Your ransom has been paid for. You are a free person. No more a slave to sin, but you are now part of God's own family. How do we respond to all this? You are Barabbas. We are Barabbas. I'll close with this. A couple of years ago, there was a terror attack on London Bridge. A man with a knife was stabbing people at will. A brave guy tried to fight this armed man with a narwhal tusk and helped pin him down before the police shot the attacker. Now, this brave guy who confronted the terrorist was an inmate convicted of murder that he had committed years ago. That particular day, he was out for the very first time on a day release program when he encountered this situation and decided to take on the attacker. And this man's act of bravery saved many lives. The Queen of England, in what is called a rare form of clemency, issued a pardon. For the Queen has the power to exercise this royal prerogative of mercy. Exercising pardon to a murderer is very rare, almost unheard of. But this man, for his act of bravery, received pardon from the royalty that eventually led to his release. Here's the deal. The queen pardoned this murderer because of his noble act. It made up for his crime. In a way, you can say he earned it. Now, let's say the queen were to pardon the knife-wielding man, the one guilty of the terrorist attack, and there will be a protest and a huge uproar, and justifiably so. The beauty of the gospel is it goes against all human standards of justice. For you and I, we were not the brave guy fighting the bad guy and saving lives. We were the bad guy. We were guilty on all counts before God with no righteousness of our own. We were bent on rebelling against His will. We didn't deserve to be forgiven. And yet Jesus has lavished His love on us and given us His life so we can be freed. This is precious gospel truth. Never allow this truth to become too common. The Apostle Paul wrote these words in Romans 5, verses 7 and 8. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, 
though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Get this straight. Jesus didn't die for you because you deserved it or you're good. While we were still sinners, while our backs were turned away from God, while we were bent and going our own way, Jesus died for us. And on the basis of what Jesus has done, God exercises his royal prerogative of mercy and he extends pardon. And your sin and your acts of shame were stripped and laid on Jesus and his innocence and his righteousness are transferred over to you. What a divine exchange. Our salvation is sealed in Christ's blood. And we can now look forward to an eternity with God. That's why we celebrate Good Friday.